Hey guys, what's up? Uh, I, I'm so sorry about not being able to be there today. I woke up this morning and it just was not something that needed to happen. Um, and so uh, I love y'all. I miss y'all. Um, I wanted to try something new today uh, instead of just throwing somebody in the deep end and making them try to preach without preparation. Uh, I wanted to try to maybe run through my sermon this morning on video and then maybe try to let y'all watch it. And so if this works, great. If not, well, we'll never do it again. Um, but uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to grab mine over here. Matthew chapter 27. Uh, if you don't uh, have a Bible of your own. Uh, we're not going to have text up on the screen tonight because you get to see my ugly face. Uh, but there are some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. And so if uh, you don't own a Bible of your very own, please take that one home. Uh, we believe that God uses his word to, to do big things. We believe that he uses it to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance and uh, call us to himself and reveal himself to his people. And so uh, we, we want you to know God. And if having a Bible of your very own helps you bridge that gap, and that's something we're all about, and uh, we would love for you to take one of those uh, little paperback Bibles home. All right, so we are walking through a series that that will take us up through Easter, and uh, that we're calling the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. Um, and at the end of Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus has this giant crowd of people that are following him around, and they, they want to see him teach with authority, and they want to see him do a miracle or two. And, and, and Matthew tells us there that Jesus is going around, quote, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus is the king of an upside-down and otherworldly kingdom. He, he sits down on the side of a mountain, and he begins to unfold for this crowd what that kingdom looks like, and what that kingdom values, and what that kingdom rewards. And that section of teaching, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, have come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And many commentators, though, uh, they like to refer to it as the King's Manifesto. And that, that sounds a lot more uh, hoity-toity, but that, that's what it is. Uh, if you want to get into the mind and the motivations of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is really where you need to start. It doesn't mean that there aren't other things that are important, but if you miss the Sermon on the Mount, well, then you've missed a lot. Right. And so we've been walking through this Sermon on the Mount uh, for the last several weeks, and uh, we actually get to close it out this morning. Uh, we've, we've got some cool plans for uh, the last four weeks of this series, uh, but that, we'll tell you about that when we get there next week. Uh, but for today, we're actually going to finish chapter 7 this morning. So you ready to look at it with me? All right, Matthew chapter 7. Let's look at verse 1 together. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All right, so there are a ton of people in this world that don't know a lick about the Bible, but they know this verse. Judge not, right? Don't judge me, you judgy McJudger face. Uh, they can never point to it if their life depended on it, but they got a verse, right? Yeah, and, and so uh, all of this is further complicated, further complicated by the fact that, that Jesus says this three chapters deep into a sermon where, well, he's already made it explicitly clear that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will never see the kingdom of God. And, and when Jesus says never, like he seriously means never. Right? He's made it explicitly clear by this point in the sermon that, that we could forget about our adultery because even our lust is enough to lead us to hell. And we could forget about murder because even our anger is enough to merit God's wrath. It would seem, it would seem that Jesus is the ultimate judgy McJudger face. We live in a culture where autonomy and freedom are so celebrated and so exalted that honestly, I think our sense of liberty sometimes extends all the way into running right off the cliff. And so pithy little phrases get thrown around like nobody's perfect or only God can judge me or in this case, judge not lest you be judged. 
Well, they get thrown around as if there's some kind of trump card. Well, that should just forever end the argument. And all the while, all the while, we lose sight of the reality that true love, well, it never just sits there and watches people run off a cliff. Ever. I, I mean, if, if that were the case, then it would have actually been wrong for Jesus to come and save us from our sin. I mean, think about that for a second. If true love is truly manifested, if it's truly shown in never judging as the world would define judging, if the epitome of love as it's understood in our culture is to back off and just let people do their thing, well, then that would mean that the incarnation of Jesus was actually wrong and that Jesus should have just kept to his own business. Jesus, you just, you just worry about you. I'll worry about me. I'm fine, thanks. Don't you know the Bible? It says somewhere in there, judge not lest you be judged. You, you should probably memorize that or something, right? So what do we do with this text here? Well, either A, either A, Jesus has dramatically changed not only his tone, but his entire system of theology in the middle of this sermon. Or B, Jesus has something other than the world's typical definition of judging in view here. So what's going on then? Well, I think the clue is to be found in the second part of the sentence. That you be not judged, it says. So look at verse 2 again. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So who's Jesus speaking to here? Well, he's speaking to followers. He's speaking to those who are sitting at his feet as he explains the realities of his kingdom. And he's warning them that a critical spirit is going to come back and bite them in the rear. Well, now, why would Jesus bring this up in this moment? Why do we bring it up now? Well, I mean, we closed things out last week by talking about how much God loves you and cares for you and provides for you. We talked about how we need to raise the level of our eyes and chase the rewards Jesus promises to his people and how when we take our eyes off of those things, we'll see ourselves correctly and we'll see others correctly and we'll see God correctly, right? And it may have been a week since we talked about it, but this is one sermon. Jesus just took a breath and started the next sentence. And so how are these two thoughts connected? Well, when you have a critical spirit, where's your focus? Who are you not seeing correctly? The answer is everyone. You're not seeing yourself correctly. You're not seeing others correctly. And you're definitely not seeing God correctly. Exactly like chasing the wrong reward, being unfairly critical of other people's sin instead of your own is going to skew your view of every other thing. And so Jesus fleshes this idea out for us in verse 3. Look at that with me. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right, so Jesus says, you're worried about what this guy over here is doing and your own junk is on full display. I mean, yeah, he's got some sawdust in his eye, and there's definitely causing a problem. I'm sure it's painful, but you got a two-by-four hanging out your face. Like, you probably ought to do something about that. Just a thought, right? And that's what a critical spirit does. It blinds you to your own sin, and it blinds you to your own terrible need, and it puts your attention instead on the sin of others. You busy yourself with worrying about what others uh, are doing, and the whole time you're, you're blind to the fact that you are in desperate, desperate need. And slowly but surely, it always works out this way, slowly but surely, you will end up positioning yourself as the judge 
rather than the one who has been humbled before the judge. So what, what does King Jesus say? Well, first he says, take the, the log out of your own eye and then you'll be in a position to help others. That doesn't mean that you have to be sinless before you can call out someone else's sin, but it will always, hear me, always change the tone of that conversation, won't it? I mean, you approach them in humility, offering help to a wounded sinner from a wounded sinner. That's a very different beast. See God correctly, see yourself correctly, see your own sin correctly, and then you'll be in a far more advantageous position to see others and their sin correctly. In that moment, well, confrontation and judgment are no longer an act of self-righteousness, but actually an act of love. Others-focused, self-emptying love. It's the difference between yelling critique at someone as they run towards the cliff and desperately running after someone to stop them because you know what's at the bottom of that cliff. Love always engages, just never as an act of inflating ourselves. It, it, it empties itself for the sake of another. That's what love is in the Bible. And, and in that moment, in that moment, I'll just be honest with you, I, I don't mind at all having that judgment measured to me, too. I mean, would you? But Jesus isn't done talking yet. Look at verse 6. Do not give what is holy and do not throw, uh, and do not throw your pearls, oh, sorry, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> one of the funniest things to me whenever someone kind of blindly quotes the don't judge others passage is that just a couple of sentences after that, Jesus calls some of those sinners dogs and pigs. Like, like you really want to go with a strictly literal translation there, chief? I mean, you sure about that? I mean, it's in your best interest to read just a little bit between the lines here. So what is going on then? Well, you, you probably put the pieces together, but I mean, this isn't a polite thing. Right? It's, it's actually, though, less polite than you think. To, to a first century Jew uh, in Jesus's audience, it's a whole lot worse. Uh, dogs in our culture are pampered. And I'm not even talking about those of you who, who treat them like your own kids. I mean, that's a conversation for another day. Uh, no, I mean, even those of you who have let them into your house and call them pets, and feed them with anything that you would ever consider eating yourself. Like if you were to snatch some random person out of Jesus' audience and just plop them down on your couch this afternoon, they would think that you are loco for treating a dog that way. You mean you let that thing in here? You kidding me? To a first century Jew, a dog was nothing more than a mongrel. On a good day, on a good day, you might toss them some scraps from your table that you didn't eat and couldn't save. But you would never ever prepare them a meal and you wouldn't dare hand them a piece of meat that was holy and dedicated to the altar sacrilege sacrilege in every way but then there's the pig and the pig is even worse the pig excuse me <coughs> the pig was the epitome of uncleanliness to the jewish mind not only did they not eat pigs, but they didn't even touch them, right? If, if Jews were forced to live around other cultures, it reviled them and they would rather get away. But, but don't think of a cute little piggy here. Now, we're, we're not talking about that level of domestication yet in first century Judea. Uh, um, so in that world, a pig is going to have sharp hooves, they're going to have tusks, and they're going to tear up everything they can get to. And they would tear you up if you got in their way. And so Jesus says here, don't throw valuable things to like pearls to the pigs. They'll ignore it, they'll mistreat it, and then they'll probably attack you after they're done. So what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, 
I, I think Jesus is saying that some people aren't worth your time and effort. That, that despite the value of what you're offering, they'll just mistreat it, they'll misuse it, and, and maybe, maybe they'll even attack you for it. And I'm sure you're surprised to learn that, well, this verse doesn't get quoted nearly as often as judge not. But didn't Jesus just show us that we should lovingly and humbly engage others? I mean, didn't he say earlier that our enemies understanding the gospel is important enough that, uh, that we should turn the other cheek at times or go two miles instead of one mile or go ahead and give them your cloak after they, you've given them your shirt? Yeah, yeah, he did. And he also said this. Welcome to the already but not yet kingdom, guys. So what do we do then? Well, remember that over and over and over again, Jesus is calling out the deep things in our hearts. He's calling out our motivations and he's calling out our desires and he's holding them up to the perfect standard of his own righteousness. And he's revealing uh, to us exactly where and how we fall short of his glory. And so when the obvious question is asked, which one do I do then? Well, in all honesty, the most pastoral answer I can give you is, well, which one are you least inclined to? Which one do you fight against and wish weren't the true, wish weren't the case? And then in all likelihood, Jesus would probably have you go do that one. Does that take a lot of wisdom? Oh, yeah. It takes a whole bunch of wisdom. Do we wish that Jesus made it more black and white than that? Absolutely we do. So how in the world then do we navigate through that minefield? Well, the good and wise king, the loving king, has not left us alone in this, and he's not done with his sermon. Look at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, uh, if his son is asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who know, uh, if, sorry, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? All right, so let me speak to a larger pastoral point just for just a second. All right, when you're reading your Bible and you don't understand how a passage fits into the larger context, you are at a high, high risk of misunderstanding that passage. Full stop. I mean, it's not automatic, though. God is the one who brings understanding. He's, the, he's big enough to work in spite of us. He's the one who brings illumination to the text. But in that moment, you're ignoring the means that he normally uses to protect you from being dumb. And so this passage is one of the biggest offenders of that, guilt, of that guilty thing. Right? So I know I've picked on the prosperity gospel uh, over the last couple of weeks in a row, and uh, I'm going to end up picking on it this morning too. I promise I'm not trying to be mean here, but as a general rule, if your bad theology gets broadcasted all over the world on TBN, like I'm going to take the time to point that out when I come to it in the text. And so, well, here we are again. All right. And so two paragraphs ago, two paragraphs ago, Jesus just got finished explaining to us that we should take our eyes off of the material possessions uh, uh, that we are chasing after and instead seek first the kingdom of God. One sentence ago, Jesus set up a dilemma in us that desperately needs some wisdom from God in order to even take the next step. All right, class. So what then does Jesus have in view here when he tells us to ask freely? The answer is wisdom. He's talking about discernment from God. Like, do you think God would answer that request? Of course he would. 
Because he's the good father who delights in giving good things to his children. And Jesus, he illustrates exactly that for us. It's like, even as a fallen, sinful father, I'm not going to be cruel to my son. I'm not going to hear his request for something he needs and something I can easily provide and instead just give him something that would harm him. If that's even outside of my character, what about God then? God delights, delights to give his children what they need. And those of you who have been around long enough, what's the, what's the chief way that God gives us wisdom? Through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and making sense of his word. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying uh, before he's arrested and then he prays for us. And uh, he prays for us and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. In Luke's gospel account, uh, Luke's account of this sermon, in chapter 11, verse 13, he records it this way. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is saying, you want wisdom? Ask, seek, knock. God will give you the wisdom that you need through the Holy Spirit. Is it, is it wrong to ask God for material things? Not a bit. But the text, but this text right here has absolutely nothing to do with that. Like not a bit. And so we should, you know, like maybe probably stop using it that way. Just a thought. All right. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12. So, time out. <laughs> I, I know it may not seem like it, but the word so is actually super important here. Really, really important. It's just three little letters in the Greek, and, and it's nothing but a tiny little conjunction. Nothing to really write home about. It's all over the place in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated as so, sometimes it's translated as thus, sometimes it's translated as because, or my favorite that we talk about in here sometimes, sometimes it's translated as therefore. Right? So why is so, so important here? Well, because it means that the following sentence is the result of what came before it, right? So because the father delights in his children and treats us the way he does, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Hey, everybody, it's the golden rule. Woo! So why is it important that it's closely connected to the way that the father treats us? Well, because of something I have here. Um, uh, I was going to have it on the slides, but I can show you this right now. Um, this right here is a poster. Uh, many moons ago, uh, I was a collegiate minister on the campus of Connecticut College. I, I worked in New London. I had uh, parachurch ministries on multiple college campuses. Uh, and while I was there in New London, uh, there, there's this really gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous chapel on the campus of Conn College, right? Uh, it, it was a Christian chapel at first, but it got all New Englanded, and so now it's an all-faiths chapel, uh, so that's how that works in New England. Um, and so right as you walk into the gorgeous doors of Conn College's absolutely impressive chapel, this poster is hanging on the wall, right? And the point of this poster is to try and show that the golden rule exists in all faiths and so that therefore we have more in common than we do apart and we should just, you know, drop all our dogmatism and get along. Now, while blind dogmatism ought to be dismissed, this poster drives me crazy because it's actually nothing but blind dogmatism. So let, let me read some of the things for you here and I'll show you what I mean. Um, Judaism, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. Hinduism, do not do to others what you would call, what would cause pain to you. Buddhism, treat not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucianism, do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. 
Even Zoroastrianism makes the cut here. It says, do not do to others whatever is injurious to yourself. And there's several more uh, examples on here um, that I really don't have time to work through, but some of them aren't even close to what the golden rule would teach. And they're just kind of shoehorned in for the sake of being able to say, oh, this faith's on there too, and this faith's on there too. All right. Um, so why would I argue, why would I argue that, that this is actually dogmatic, blindly dogmatic? Well, there's actually two reasons why, massive reasons. The first one is this, because none of the things that I just read to you actually come from the source documents of those religions. Not a one. They're all teachings from commentaries on those faiths, trying to summarize those faiths uh, through one stream. And, and so, uh, and many of those commentaries are out, of, actually out of step with the largest branches of those faith movements. They're worlds apart, worlds apart from God in the flesh of that religion, saying, "This is what I value." They're not the same thing at all. Second problem I have with this poster is that every single one of these quotes are in a negative tone. In other words, don't do things that you don't want done to you. There's a selfishness resting at the very bottom of all of these quotes. But that's not what Jesus said. Look at verse 12 again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so Jesus is speaking in the positive here. Right? He's not talking about avoiding fault. He's talking about actively loving others. Why? Well, because it's already been modeled for us and because it continues to be modeled for us. And this is why the word so is so important at the beginning of verse 12. It's because Jesus and his commandments aren't like anything else that this world has to offer. I mean, you can shoehorn quotes into a cute little poster all you want, but at the end of the day, King Jesus is actually downright otherworldly. He has no equal. I, I, I didn't read one of them, uh, the, the one for Islam. It's, it comes the closest to the golden rule right, by saying, wish for others what you want for yourself. But that's not the same thing because wishing just doesn't cut it for me. Jesus didn't wish good for us. He came to suffer and die for those who were far from him. He laid down his own life on the cross for the sake of his enemies. So hear me clearly. I, I don't want a God who only wishes good for me or avoids doing fault to me because he doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. I desperately need, need a God who will pursue me with his active and otherworldly love. The hard part though, oh guys, the hard part is that, well, he calls his followers to model the exact same kind of love for others. In fact, he says it fulfills the law and the, the prophets. You may not know this, but that's really stinking hard to do. In fact, I, it almost feels impossible. I mean, isn't there an easier way? Well, Jesus is going to answer that question for us in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. One pathway is hard, the other pathway is easy, but they have wildly different destinations. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Invest yourself well, as we talked about last week. Look at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. All right, so how is this connected to the paragraph before? Well, because false prophets always push you towards the wide gate. Always. Jesus says here, beware of spiritual leaders who are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. They may have the appearance of godliness and they may have the appearance of faithfulness and maybe even the appearance of success as a leader in a church. But at the end of the day, they're really just eating folks up or they're about to. Jesus says you can judge them by their fruit. Now, some have pointed to uh, this fruit part and connected it with numerical growth in a church or commercial success in a ministry. I, I don't think, though, that that's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, train wrecks also gather a lot of eyeballs. All right? And so a crowd does not necessarily mean health. I think Jesus is talking about life. He's talking about spiritual growth and spiritual depth and health here. Uh, are, are people actually growing in maturity under that leader's care? Numerical success can certainly be a byproduct of health, but well, they aren't directly connected. So how then do you tell the difference? Well, you get all judgy McJudger face on them. You pay attention for, for the good of yourself and for the good of the rest of the sheep. You keep your eyes open and you judge them. Does Stephen know what he's talking about right now? Yeah, Stephen knows what he's talking about right now. Church family, you have a mandate from Jesus to pay careful attention to how I lead or how anybody else in leadership leads here. Now, this is not a mandate for you to be a jerk for Jesus. You can take the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in mine. But hear me say it clearly. Judge me by my fruit. End of story. For the long-term good of our church, judge me. But before you get too far ahead of yourself, I'm not the only one needing to be judged here. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so Jesus seems to believe here that there will be a number of people on the final day with a capital D who have spent their entire lives in church. I mean, they even did some cool stuff. And Jesus talks about prophesying here and casting out demons, but we could probably modernize the list a little bit and say, well, they worked in the nursery faithfully and they, uh, they went on a mission trip or maybe they were taught as a kid to tithe and so important to them that they haven't missed a week in 60 years. Jesus says that there will be a number of people on that final day who did all of those really, really great things, good things, valuable things, who will find out the hard way that they had zero relationship with Jesus. Lord, Lord, did we not? I don't know you. Depart from me. Your attempts at self-made righteousness are actually lawlessness to me, and they insult me. But those aren't the only ones in trouble. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds, uh, built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See, the mark of true discipleship, of actually following Jesus, is not hearing and believing, but rather hearing and believing and doing. And so Jesus paints a picture here of two builders. And as far as we know, everything about their houses they build are similar, except for one thing, the foundation. 
Those who hear Jesus and do what he says, they're built on a rock. And those who hear Jesus and don't do what he says, sand. Storm comes on both houses, both uh, beats on both houses, both houses get rain, both houses get wind, both houses get flood, but only one house survives. And Jesus' point could not be more clear. Those whose lives are built upon relationship with the king and obedience to his commands will survive on that final day. And those whose lives are not, well, great was the fall of them. Now, I think that most modern preachers would turn after that and say something to the tune of, now everybody bow your heads and close your eyes and repeat after me. And they lead the whole audience in the sinner's prayer and ask everybody what, uh, who really meant it to come down on the front. But man, Jesus doesn't run that route at all. Look, he, he does things a little different. Look what it says in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. At the end of the day, we either recognize and respond to Jesus' authority, or we don't. He's walked through some downright eternity-shaping stuff in this little sermon on a mountainside, and I think the abrupt nature of how he shuts it all down forces the question in each and every one of us. Are we with King Jesus or not? Are we citizens of the already but not yet kingdom? Or are we just hanging out on the fringe? Those who belong to the kingdom, they hear his voice and they do what he says and they are shaped more and more day by day into his likeness by his grace. And as they are shaped to look more and more like him, the already but not yet kingdom slowly creeps forth, waiting eagerly for the day when he will make all things new. So how should we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. And, and listen, with a great love and pastoral concern for you this morning, I would gently call you with the same words that the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Not in a way that would call settled things into doubt, but in a way that keeps your eyes open and answers tough questions honestly. It's the kind of testing that understands that we're actually talking about eternal things here and we should probably you know, treat them as eternal things. Somewhat important. And then, and then once all that's settled for you, I think the next step of response is to figure out who God is putting in your path this week that needs to hear about the king that you give your allegiance to. The king who carries both an otherworldly love and the authority to back that up forever. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can respond to God's word this morning too. And you do that by repenting of your sin and calling on Jesus as Lord. People might attempt to claim the otherworldly love of Jesus as their own every once in a while. But guys, they always fall short. Always. Not because they're disingenuous or because they're not trying hard, but because the perfect act of love had to be modeled through a cross. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Jesus died to pay the penalty that you owe for your sin. He died to reconcile you back to, your, to himself. And, and you can become a part of his kingdom and a part of his family this morning by repenting and calling on him in faith. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. Love to walk you through that next step. But let's all of us, every one of us, respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. You love us with a great love. You 
laid down your life for us, but also you call us to heal. You call us to yourself and we are either with you or we are sadly not. Regardless of what our religious backgrounds might be, regardless of what our religious actions might be, we are either a part of the kingdom or we're just playing games. So God, would you save people today? Would you solidify in us the work that you've done? And for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? God, we love you. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. Hopefully I get to see you next week.